And we're going to go back over the same chapter I covered last week from a little different angle because there's just too much here. So if you missed last week and you say, hey, he didn't say anything about uh, the burning bush or Moses uh, encountering God as the great I am, well, guess what? You missed it. That was last week. So you can get that online, uh, listen to the message or um, read the printed version online. But we want to read Exodus 3, 1 through 22. And there's, again, a printed message. There are outlines you can uh, take advantage of in your bulletin. And uh, I want to look at it again from a different perspective this week and mention some things I wasn't able to last Sunday. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, and yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. He also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that, from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me, and furthermore I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you, that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I'll say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name and what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. 
This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I'm indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And so I said, I'll bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite, the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will pay heed to what you say. And you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt and you will say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. So now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. And so I'll stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And you will put them on your sons and daughters. And thus you will plunder the Egyptians. John Calvin begins his classic work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, with this profound sentence. He says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Knowledge of God and of ourselves. And then John McNeil, who edits that work, makes this comment in in a footnote. He says, these decisive words set the limits of Calvin's theology and condition every subsequent statement. It's quite a, uh, quite a claim because every subsequent statement goes on for about 1,600 pages. <laughs> but it's all under that one, uh, one sentence. Knowledge of God and of ourselves. Now, in our last study of Exodus 3 last week, we saw how God saves his chosen people. He does it through his chosen servants who know him. And at the burning bush, Moses came to know more of God's holiness. He also was reminded, we saw, of God's covenant promises to um, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That theme is hammered repeatedly in chapter 3, and we looked at that. And he learned that God's silence over the centuries, it had been four centuries since God had spoken to Abraham, and much of that time Israel had been in uh, slavery in Egypt, and God showed him that uh, the silence over those years did not imply indifference to the people's Uh, suffering, but rather that God intended to bless his people, to bring them into the land where there uh, was an abundance. And also then we saw that through God's revelation of himself as Yahweh, and that name 
is related to I am in Hebrew. Uh, Moses came to know more of who God truly is as the self-existent, eternal uh, God who is a covenant-keeping God. And so Moses came then to know more of who God truly is. And all of that relates to that first part of uh, Calvin's opening statement. True wisdom consists in knowing God, knowing who God is. But then to be used of God in his plan of salvation, the second half is we need to know ourselves. And Exodus 3 reveals not only how Moses came to know more of God, but also how he came to know more of himself and his call to God's mission and how that would be accomplished. And so today I want to explore this idea that salvation is from the Lord through his chosen servants who first know themselves and then also they know God's presence, his power, and his promise for their mission. So first of all, through this um, encounter at the burning bush, Moses came to know that salvation is from the Lord through his chosen servants who know themselves. Now, When Calvin talks about knowing ourselves, he's not saying we ought to go take a personality inventory or that we ought to sit and just kind of meditate on looking inward or that sort of thing, but rather the only reliable source for knowing ourselves is God's Word. And we've been looking at that on the uh, Wednesday night class I've been uh, teaching on the Institutes where... Calvin really shows from the Bible how once we get a glimpse of God, it makes our view of ourselves go south into the basement as we realize we're not as great as we thought we were, and God is far greater than we thought he is. Now, of course, at this point, Moses didn't have the Bible. It hadn't yet been written. He wrote the first five books himself later. Uh, But in Exodus 3 at the burning bush, God spoke directly to Moses And we can assume, I think, that during his 40 years out there of tending sheep in that barren wilderness, he also had some direct revelation from God. And I say that because in this chapter, Moses is aware of God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's repeated here three times in this chapter. Uh, He knew that God had promised to make a great nation out of Abraham's descendants and to bless all nations through them. He knew about God's promise to bring Jacob's descendants back into the land of Canaan and uh, give them that land flowing with milk and honey. We've seen, too, that Moses had already made a faith commitment. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 26 says that by faith Moses decided not to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God because he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And that's an amazing verse because it says Moses knew something about Christ, the promise of Messiah. And he said that's better than the rewards of enjoying everything in Pharaoh's court. And uh, again, that verse shows that Moses knew something about eternal life. 
that he would give up the temporal for the eternal because his temporal life uh, is about to get very difficult. It already has with 40 years in the wilderness, but not going to get easier now. And so even though Moses didn't have a Bible, he did know a whole lot about God, I think through direct revelation. And while, again, personality tests are not totally useless, they might yield an insight or two here or there, the main source we have for learning about ourselves is the Word of God. Uh, it reveals to us what our hearts are like. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9, the, the Lord says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Certainly we can't. God does. And uh, Hebrews chapter 4 verses 12 and 13 says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, and both of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid, to bear, laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And so the Bible is like that. It goes way down deep inside, opens up our hearts, and we go, oh, goodness, I didn't know I was like that, but we realize we are. And, you know, it's kind of intimidating to have your deepest thoughts and intents of your heart laid bare. Um, but that's what walking with God entails. And, you know, you can fake it at church, put on the Christian front, look pretty good, you can sometimes fake it at work or in other places, but you can't fake it with God. God really gets down to the heart level. And in 1 John 1, it talks about walking in the light as he himself is in the light. Well, when you walk in the light, you're exposed. You know, if I'm in the darkness and I'm all dirty, you don't notice it. But when the light turns on, you go, oh man, you need to go take a shower. You know, you're filthy. And that's how the Word of God does with our heart. And uh, David, in Psalm 139, he's meditated there on God's omniscience. He knows everything. His omnipresence. You can't get away from Him anywhere. And then he cries out, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Now, of course, God knows our heart. What he's saying is, Would you help me to know my heart? Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. And so as you read God's word, and I hope you do that just about every single day, um, God is able to get down to uh, the heart level and reveal any sinful motives, intentions that you need to root out. In Ephesians 4, that's called the old man. And we're to put it off and also to reveal the good news, who you are now in Christ, your new identity in him. And that's the new man that we are to put on. And that's the true us is who we are now in Christ. And so we need both of those. And the word of God is the only way to know those things. Uh, a second thing you need to know, though, to serve God rightly is your own weaknesses your own weakness. And the Lord tells Moses in verse 10, 
that he's going to send him to Pharaoh to bring his people, God's people, out of Egypt. And Moses' immediate reaction in verse 11 is, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Now, commentators are divided at this point over whether Moses is demonstrating true humility or is he making a faithless uh, comment, um, you know, a faithless excuse here. I tend to agree with Calvin in his commentary who says he thinks at this point Moses' comment stems from genuine humility as he recognizes this is an impossible task for anyone. And uh, 40 years earlier, uh, Stephen in Acts 7 says that Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. He was a man of power and words and deeds, but he had attempted to deliver Israel by slaying that Egyptian taskmaster who was beating a Hebrew man. And uh, he had to flee for his life. And so now here he is. He's not a member of Pharaoh's court. He's been a lowly nomadic shepherd for 40 years. His education has sat on the shelf for 40 years. I presume he could still speak some Egyptian, but, you know, I've been more than 40 years out of school, and I can't tell you how much I've forgotten. Uh, and so Moses has been out there, forgotten his education, um, and now God is calling him to go stand before the most powerful monarch on the planet who could just nod to his servants and Moses' head would be lopped off and tell him, you need to let these two million Hebrew slaves go. And uh, fat chance, you know, that's just an overwhelming task. And so I think Moses here is just legitimately overwhelmed with his own inadequacy for this task. And then as the story unfolds, and we'll look at this next time in chapter 4, God gives Moses repeated assurances, I will be with you, I will empower you. And at that point, I believe Moses' humility devolves into a lack of faith. Uh, one commentator, R.A. Cole, says, Self-distrust is good, but only if it leads to trust in God. Otherwise, and this is what's going to happen with Moses, it ends as spiritual paralysis, inability, and unwillingness to undertake any course of action. But the Lord had taught that lesson to the Apostle Paul when Paul in 2 Corinthians cries out to God to take away his thorn in the flesh. And nobody knows what that is for sure. It could have been a physical uh, problem, a health issue. It could have been the Judaizers who went and followed Paul every single place he went and tried to undo his work. We don't know, but God said no. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. And then Paul concludes, 2 Corinthians 12, 10. He says, therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I'm weak, 
then I'm strong. And so the reason he's strong when he's weak is when he's weak, he knows he's weak and he trusts in God. If you think you're something, then you don't need to trust in God. And we're being fed a line of baloney today that says, and I hear Christians say this, you've got to believe in yourself. Have you heard that? You know, especially sometimes from these athletes. You've got to believe in yourself. Uh, that's not in the Bible, except coming from the enemy. Uh, the Bible says, no, I need to believe in God. God is the one who can empower me, though I am weak. Hudson Taylor was the founder of the China Inland Mission, and if you've never read his story, you're really missing a blessing. But um, that mission had grown into some notoriety, uh, became one of the largest evangelical missions. And a church leader once said to Taylor, sometimes you must be tempted to be proud because of the wonderful way God has used you. I doubt if any man living has uh, <clears throat> any man living has had greater honor. And then Taylor said, on the contrary, I often think that God must have been looking for someone small enough and weak enough for him to use and that he found me. So the only reliable source then for knowing yourself is God's word. And when you get into God's word and begin to serve the Lord, to do it rightly, you have to recognize, you know what? In and of myself, I am weak. I must depend on the Lord. A third principle here then, to serve God rightly, you need to know, as Moses came to know here, that God has chosen, called, and is equipping you to serve him. Um, God chose Moses to know him. He called Moses to serve him. And he equipped Moses to serve him. And it should be the same with us. And so the first point to recognize is that God has chosen you uh, to know him. We saw last time how God chose Abraham. Out of all the people on the earth, he picked that man. And then he chose Abraham's son, Isaac. And he chose Isaac's son, Jacob. And he promised to make their descendants into a great nation to bless all nations through them. And now God has chosen Moses to know him. Um, you know, think about it. If God had not chosen Moses, he could have died as an infant under Pharaoh's edict to kill all the Hebrew babies. God protected him there. Uh, if God had not chosen Moses, um, he could have been very content to grow up or remain in Pharaoh's court. He could have probably had a lot of power, a lot of uh, material possessions, a good life there. Uh, but God laid his hand on Moses to draw him out of that. Um, if God had not chosen to reveal himself to Moses at the burning bush, Moses probably would have lived out his days as a nomadic shepherd out there in the wilderness. But God came and called Moses. He chose him. Has God chosen you? Sometimes people will ask me, well, how do you know if God has chosen you? And here's the answer from the Bible. The way you know is, have you repented of your sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope of heaven? Uh, has God changed your heart? 
formerly you were indifferent to Christ and the things of God. Now you love Jesus and you love his word and you, you love his people and all of that because Jesus died to save you. And if you can say, yeah, well, guess what? That didn't come from you. It came from God because no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws him. And so God is the one who does that. And he is the author of our salvation. And the point is simply this. Don't try to serve the Lord until you know the Lord. It's the fact that God chose you that then is the basis for serving him. And if you get that backwards, you might congratulate yourself on your service, but someday you would hear Jesus say, I never knew you. And that would be a tragedy. So, you begin there. And then secondly, if you know Christ, God has called you to serve him. And you say, well, wait a minute. You know, I'm not called to be a pastor or a Christian worker or whatever. Well, if God has called you, then he has gifted you. And if he's gifted you, you're supposed to use that gift to serve him. First uh, Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11 puts it this way. As each one... Notice that phrase. Each one, that's you, has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And then he breaks the gifts into two broad categories. Whoever speaks is to do so as one whom, uh, who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength of which God supplies. That's significant. So you say, well, you know, I just kind of help out in the kitchen at church. Are you doing it by the strength God supplies? That's what Peter says you should be doing, you know. Well, I just help do bulletins or whatever, you know. You think, well, that's behind the scenes. Peter says do that by the strength which God supplies. And the result is so that in all things... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. And so the point is, if you know Christ, you have a gift. And you're to employ that gift in some capacity to serve him. Now, some people will say, well, all right, I'll take that by faith. But the difficult part is knowing what is my gift and how am I to use that in uh, serving him. Certainly some are called to serve him full time in a local church ministry. Some are called to go out in evangelistic ministries. Uh, some to go to foreign missions. But I think that even if you aren't called to go into some kind type of so-called full-time work, you still need to sense God's call on your life and serve him in whatever that he's given you to do because we all have been given gifts and Peter says use them to serve. Now, probably your calling isn't going to be a burning bush kind of thing or a Damascus road, you know, where the Lord appears. Those were pretty unusual. Um, share with you why I'm doing what I, I'm doing. When I was in college, um, God just impressed me with a couple of verses I could not shake. And he doesn't do this with everyone, but I could not shake Jesus' words, I will build my church, 
And what Paul said in Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And I thought to myself, well, if Christ has promised to build his church, then that's a promise of success. And so I can get involved in that and know that somehow it will succeed. And if Christ loved his church enough to give himself for her, and I love Christ, then I've got to love his church and give myself up for her. And so I began to make some feeble attempts to teach the Bible. And uh, I was surprised, to be honest, at how many people would come up to me sometimes weeks later and tell me that my teaching had helped them. And I thought, really? <laughs> I didn't know it was that good, you know. I just kind of bumbled along. But it began to confirm to me that the Lord wanted to use me to teach his word. And, and so that's why I went to seminary and began to study how to study the word, how to teach the word. And um, I felt extremely adequate when I began as a pastor. I think I've told you that I told the Lord I'll try it for three years. And that was 41 years ago. And so here I am. And uh, God has been gracious. And I still feel very inadequate as a pastor. And uh, I just every week have to say, Lord, I, I don't know how to do this. If you don't do something it's all going to fall flat. And so don't let your weakness keep you from serving. Let it drive you to depend on the Lord. And then he will use whatever the gifts are that you have in whatever way to serve you, uh, serve him in line with your gifts. Uh, the third thing to note here in Moses is that God is equipping you to serve him. And I'm using the present tense is equipping because it's really a lifelong process. Um, I, I've been preaching for 41 years, and I've read two or three books on how to preach this year alone. I just keep working at it because I realize I don't quite have this down yet, and I'm trying to, to do better. So it's a lifelong process of learning how to serve the Lord. Now, how does God equip us? Well, it's significant, I think, that Moses being educated in all of the wisdom and learning of the Egyptians and a man of power in words and deeds didn't qualify him to serve the Lord. In fact, that qualified him to fail because he was trusting himself. And so he goes out to the backside of the desert for 40 years, and that's when he got to know God better, and I think he got to know himself better. And part of Moses's coursework, as it were, in training him was this very important course that's required of all of God's servants. It's called Humility 101. And Moses had to learn that. Uh, he was an important man in Pharaoh's court. Some Josephus, the Jewish historian, thought he was going to be heir apparent to Pharaoh. And he goes from that to being a lowly shepherd of someone else's sheep. He didn't even own the sheep. Out in the middle of nowhere. And remember in Genesis, it says that shepherds were abominable to the Egyptians. So for all practical purposes, Moses was an Egyptian raised in Pharaoh's court. And now here he is tending sheep. You know, you can't make much of a greater um, jump down than that. 
But my point is, however you serve the Lord, Humility 101 and repeated courses in it are uh, a vital lesson. And coupled with that is another course called Failure 101. And that helps you do better in Humility 101. It's when you fall flat on your face, you realize, oh man, you know, I don't have what I thought I had. And uh, you read it in the Bible, and you got Moses, you have Elijah, of course, Peter in the New Testament, John Mark, who abandoned uh, Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. All of them took the course in failure uh, 101. Um, so those are the negative courses. Some positive courses would just simply be spend time daily in the Word of God. Uh, it's got to be food for your soul. And spend time daily in prayer to the Lord. That's really how God equips you, the main way, positively. And then, may I recommend that you become a reader. I didn't used to be a reader. Um, and then I had a friend when I was 18 who confronted me and said, if you don't start reading, you're never going to grow as a Christian. And it just kind of hit me side of the head, and I went, wow. And I started reading, and uh, I can say that I have been discipled through the reading I've done. Read some books that might challenge you and ground you theologically. That's important. Uh, the simplified version of Calvin's Institutes that we're working through is a great book. Um, and then I've gained more through reading Christian biographies than just about any other type of reading. And uh, just reading how men like Calvin and John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and Jonathan Edwards, who was used of God in the first great awakening in America, uh, John Newton, the slave trading sailor who met the Lord and wrote Amazing Grace, or William Carey, founder or, or father of modern missions who was a simple shoe cobbler, had had a burden for the lost, and he went to India. An amazing story of perseverance, how Carey endured in India um, family problems and other problems. And uh, he just, uh, he translated the Bible into something, or parts of the Bible into something like over 35 languages. You know, it's just amazing. Uh, Adoniram Judson, his story has, I've read it twice, and it's just really moved me to uh, deeper commitment. Charles Spurgeon, Hudson Taylor, George Mueller, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, just many, many other biographies. On the church website, I've got a bibliography on Christian books, and then another one on Christian biographies that you can access under the resources page of the website. But um, a lot of times the way you learn to serve God is you just get started. Try something. If you fall flat, well, it doesn't mean that isn't your thing. It does mean maybe you need to figure out how to do this better. Uh, or, you know, you start to do something and people say, wow, that really ministered to me. And you begin to realize, hey, that's my gift. I guess I can begin to do that. And so to serve God, 
rightly, you have to know that he's chosen you, that he's called you, that he's equipping you to serve him. A second major lesson then here about serving the Lord is that salvation is from the Lord through his chosen servants who know not only themselves, but they know his presence, his power, and his promise for their mission. Now, what is our mission? Well, our mission centers on the good news of God's salvation of oppressed people. Uh, in Exodus 3.8, God tells Moses what he, that is God, intends to do. Notice verse 8. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite, Amorite, Perizzite, Hivite, Jebusite. Um, God's going to save his people, he says. And how did he... Uh, he did that literally for them. They were oppressed in slavery. He took them to the land of promise. But I believe that that is a picture of how God spiritually also... Uh, frees those who are enslaved to sin. In Colossians chapter 1, in verses 13 and 14, Paul says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, there's the slavery of sin, and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's just got to be the best news in the world, and that's the news we proclaim to people enslaved to sin. And if you're here this morning under a load of guilt, and you've never come to Christ, the good news is you can be free of that burden this morning. This morning. It can happen as you've come to Christ and say, Lord God, I need Jesus to forgive my sins, and I need Him to uh, save me from your judgment. God does that and he rescues you, transfers you to the kingdom of his beloved son. And God's mission in some way or another is our mission. We take that message to a world that is lost and alienated from God. And then how does God fulfill that mission? Well, God uses his people who know his presence uh, to accomplish his mission. Now in verse 8, God says, I've come down to deliver my people from the power of the Egyptians. And Moses could have said, great, I'm going to sit back and watch how you do it, Lord. Let me see you do that. You know, we, we need that. Go for it, God. And God could have done that. He could have struck Pharaoh dead. He could have struck the whole Egyptian army dead. And Israel could have walked out free. But that's not how he did it, as you know the story. In verse 10, he tells Moses something else. First he says, I'm going to deliver them. Then he says in verse 10, therefore come now and I will send you <laughs> to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. And so God's mission is to deliver his people. But how does he do it? Through his servant, Moses, who... Uh, knows that God is with him. Because Moses then protests and says, uh, uh, Lord, you got the wrong guy. Who am I? I mean, I can't go to Pharaoh. I can't bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. And God's answer in verse 12 is important. Certainly, 
I will be with you. That's the key. I will be with you. And this shall be the sign that I'll, that, that, to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Now Moses had to trust God on that because that sign is still a year or so ahead. But you'll notice it's important when Moses said, who am I? The Lord didn't say, you can do it, man. Come on, trust yourself. You know, you're, you're a good guy, Moses. You need to build your self-esteem. He didn't say that. He said this, I'm with you. I'm with you. And that's enough. And that theme occurs over and over in the Bible. You get up to the book of Joshua. Moses has died. Joshua is going to lead the people across the Jordan and into the land. And in verse 9 of chapter 1 in Joshua, have, not, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't tremble or be dismayed. Why? Because you can do it? No. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And then years later, Israel was being oppressed by the, the Midianite hordes. And the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. And Gideon is overwhelmed with his inability. He says, I, I'm the least in my family, and my family's the least in Israel. And the Lord, the angel of the Lord, looks at Gideon, and he says in Judges 6.12, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. And Gideon still protested. And then the Lord repeats in verse 16, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. And so that theme goes all through the Bible. So it's not surprising that when the Lord commissions us, his disciples, with the Great Commission, you know what he says in Matthew 28, 20, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's with us. That's the reason we can do, uh, fulfill his mission. Again, one of the great books to read is David Livingston, his life. He was a mixed character. He had some rough edges, but Livingston pioneered the gospel into the interior of Africa when no white man could get in there. And uh, also another man you ought to read is John Payton. John Payton went to the New Hebrides Islands and the New Hebrides Islands were inhabited by cannibals. The very first missionary who set foot on the New Hebrides was killed and eaten within hours after he got there. And Peyton went there, and his story is incredible. Um, you, you should read it. Just miracle after miracle of how God protected him. But both Livingston and Peyton relied on the Lord's promise I will be with you. And here's what Livingston said. For would you like me to tell you what supported me uh, through all the years of exile among people whose language I could not understand and whose attitude toward me was always uncertain and often hostile? It was this. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. On those words, I staked everything, and they never failed. I staked everything, and they never failed. 
He was mauled by a lion. He was confronted by hostile chiefs. I mean, again, his story is just amazing. But he trusted in God's presence. And then John Payton, same thing. His son said of his father, My father was constantly quoting the words, Lo, I am with you always, as the inspiration of his quietness and confidence in time of danger and of his hope in the face of human impossibilities. And so our mission is to take the good news of salvation to every creature. And God uses people to do that who know his presence. And he promises us his presence. The third thing to note is that since our mission is way beyond our ability, we need then to know God's power for the mission. And in the story here, God gives Moses the power to perform miracles to deliver Israel from Egypt. He mentions that down in verse 20. Uh, He's going to stretch out his hand and strike Egypt with all these miracles, and Moses is the, the means of that. Now, contrary to what people commonly think, miracles are not scattered uniformly throughout the pages of the Bible. If you look at it, they're concentrated in certain clusters. The time of Moses and the Exodus, uh, Elijah and Elisha, who were at a low point in Israel's history. There's a few in Daniel's time, the, the fiery furnace and Daniel and the lion's den kind of thing. But then the rest are really concentrated around the time of Christ and the apostles to confirm the gospel. And That doesn't mean God doesn't do miracles in our day. He can. It does mean, though, they aren't the norm. And so these people who go around saying, you know, that we're supposed to see miracles daily, uh, I don't think they're reading their Bible rightly. Uh, They're relatively rare. But on the other hand, there's a miracle that we sometimes overlook, and it's called the miracle of the new birth. For God being able to take someone dead in their transgressions and sins and raise them to new life in Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 1, that's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And so as we uh, share the gospel, we're looking for a miracle. God, raise this person from the dead. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, their eyes are blinded by Satan. So we pray, God, open blind eyes. And it takes his miraculous power to do that. Now, we certainly should be wise in how we present the gospel. We should be persuasive. But we shouldn't rely on techniques or, or sales approaches to the gospel. Because salvation isn't a matter of talking someone into making a decision. It's a matter of God opening their blind eyes, God raising them from spiritual death to spiritual life. And in that mission, the final thing to note is it's often going to be difficult and discouraging, and so we need to know God's promise of success. And uh, Moses' mission, as we'll see in the next few chapters, was incredibly discouraging at times, difficult all the time, and the same as we try to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. We've already seen Moses' first attempt failed, and now God tells him in verse 18, he's going to go to the elders of Israel, 
And he says, they will heed uh, what you say. And the Lord warns Moses at first, Pharaoh's going to resist because I'm going to harden his heart. Uh, but later, he's going to let Israel go. And then Moses finally gets them out of Egypt in chapter 13 or 14 there. And they get into the wilderness and there's problem after problem after problem that Moses encounters with this fickle, often disobedient people who sometimes say, hey, let's get a party together and head back to Egypt. You know, we had it better there when we were slaves than we do out in this barren wilderness eating this manna. And uh, I'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks. But, you know, often when we serve the Lord, at least this was true with me, I thought, all right, the enemy's out there. I know he's out there. I didn't realize the enemy's in here too. And, and he uses people within often to discourage and divide and all of that more than those who are outside. Now the Lord promises Moses that this time he's going to succeed and God strikes um, Pharaoh with the plagues. He finally lets Israel go. And then there's a further success noted at the end of chapter 3. God says, I'm going to grant this people favor and uh, every woman's going to ask her neighbor and they're going to get articles of silver and gold. You ever wonder where all the silver and gold in the tabernacle came from? Right here. And articles of clothing and they're going to plunder the Egyptians. And the interesting thing is that is a fulfillment of prophecy because you go way back to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 14, when God tells Abraham, your people are going to be slaves in a foreign land for uh, 400 years. And then God says this, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. That's exactly what happened. Now, as we go and share the gospel with people, we don't know what's going to happen. They may laugh at us, they may scorn us, they may reject the message, but we do know something. In Isaiah 55, 11, God says, my word will not return to me void, ever. Either it will be used to, as judgment against them on judgment day, or it may be used to bring them to salvation. It may be the seed that you sow that later someone else is able to harvest. We don't know. There's a story in Acts 18. Paul is in Corinth, and he's afraid. I mean, it was a rough town. And he's already been beaten up enough, and he says, I don't want to get beaten up again. So he's thinking of leaving. And the Lord appears to him in a vision at night. And uh, in Acts 18, 9 and 10, he says to Paul, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. And then God explains, for I have many people in this city. Now, did you notice that little phrase, I am with you? It's what we just saw, wasn't it? That's God's promise. When you go and share the gospel, I'm with you. I'm with you, Paul. And then God tells Paul something he didn't know, and that is, I have many people in this city. Paul was just seeing resistance, but God says, no, no, I've got my people. You just need to preach the gospel to them, and they will come to me. And, you know, I want to believe that for Flagstaff, and I hope you do too, that God has many people in this city. 
it's, it's a resistant town. And there's a lot of opposition to the gospel. But let's believe God that he has many people in this city. And let's share the good news of Jesus Christ. Because if you're here and you know Christ as your Savior, God wants to use you as his servant to bring deliverance to people who are captive to the enemy. And the way we do it is the good news of Christ. And as you know him and you know yourself, your weakness, Lord, I can't do this, but you can. And you know his presence, you're with me, and his power and his promise that he has many people here, then we will succeed in the mission. Let's bow before him. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you work through Moses, your reluctant servant. And uh, Lord, thank you that you've entrusted us with the most powerful message in the world. The good news that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. I pray, Lord, that if any are here without Christ, they would not leave today without Christ. That they would call upon your name to save them from their sin. Thank you that you are faithful to your promise to do that for all who believe in Jesus, your son. And I pray, Lord, you would embolden us with the gospel to speak to those who are in bondage, who are lost. Many of them don't even know they're lost. But that you would use us in your great purpose of reaching out to the people of this city and through us around the world, through our missionaries. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.